Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Never the Same. It's a podcast where we talk about navigating uncertainty and the events that changed us. I'm your host, Jordan Chu. Thanks for joining me as we navigate this beautiful but uncertain world together. That all speaks to being able to have agency over my life at a time when it felt like my agency had been taken away. And and I think that that is the doorway to resilience, is getting your hands back on the steering wheel of your life and saying, hey, man, it might be going off a cliff, but I'm driving. And, and gosh, isn't today a beautiful day? Like, come on now. Hey there. So this was actually the first podcast that I recorded. Uh, I decided to release the episode with Cheyenne just because it made more sense in the story and as it connected to my story. But Ethan also played a role in my story. He was one of the first people to come and take me to the beach and just, you know, basically stand there and be like, you're going to get through this. Um, and given what he's been through, you know, I, I believed him. Um, that didn't come lately. He's been through a lot of loss of his own, um, lost both his parents very suddenly. He was diagnosed with MS and then almost immediately after diagnosed with stage four cancer. He's been through countless surgeries and yet he's one of the most full of life, vibrant, positive people I know. Um, he has a beautiful family. He has a thriving career. He adventures and travels and surfs and you know, really seems like as cheesy as it sounds, like lives life to the fullest. And yeah, seeing him on that level after what he's been through and hearing some of his advice about just how he kind of tackled the challenges that came up in his life, it gave me a lot of hope and I hope it gives some to you too. Um, yeah, I, I'm honored to, to be able to drop in and, and have this combo. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. You know, it's nice to uh, to to share some of that, you know, homemade lemonade. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think one of the things that you you told me very early on um, it was one of the most impactful things that anyone said to me. And and I'm paraphrasing, but basically, like you you got handed a bag of shit, and you got to learn how to carry it, and no one's going to tell you how to carry it, but um, figure it out and uh and I actually so as impactful as that was i i do feel like you know there was a little bit of a, a hole in that which was that i think talking to people has helped me learn how to carry it and obviously no one can carry it for you and they can't tell you how to carry your own bag because it's, it's yours and no one else has ever held that bag but um yeah just having those conversations and trying to learn a little bit from the people who've been through their own versions has helped me a lot and taught me a lot yeah, I, that's, that's absolutely it, man. I mean, it's, you know, especially in this country, we get pretty excited about the individual, right? Like we, we really glorify the individual, a lot of people worship at the altar of Ayn Rand and all that crap. And, you know, yeah, individuals are rad, but our superpowers have always come via our togetherness. And, you know, that's where these sensory beings, like we're meant to communicate. We're soft and fragile, dude, you know, drop mm -hmm. angles naked and in the woods. And it doesn't really matter what your skill set is. Eventually you're going to hit an intersection where you need someone else. And 
it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's important, you know, and, and when life gets hard or heavy or just even a little turbulent, you know, like it, it's, it's nice to lighten that load by realizing that we're part of something, you know, we, we, we have each other, even when we are at our loneliest, we are still connected. You know, we just, sometimes our brain tricks us into thinking maybe we're not, but, but we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so setting the stage, do you want to just give us a little backstory on you and, um, you can go into as much or little detail, but just to, to give people just dropping in a sense of who, who is this Ethan Stewart? What's he all about? <laughs> yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm a kid from Cape Cod. Um, I guess I'm not a kid anymore. I'm halfway through my fifth decade. Um, but yeah, I grew up on Cape Cod, moved out West chasing surf dreams. Um, during the great El Nino winter of 97, 98. And that kind of set me on a path um, that I've been on more or less ever since, you know, surfing was at the center of a lot that I did, or at least my motivation for doing things. Um, and eventually found my way to writing for a living, um, writing all sorts of different things, you know, writing for surf magazines, covering Michael Jackson trials for newspapers, writing about forest fires for National Geographic, like just all different stuff. And uh, yeah, at about age 33, 34, things started getting pretty wobbly um, in terms of like the challenges that were coming my way. Uh, you know, life is always challenging, at least in some relative sort of way. I don't think anybody skates, you know, um, but in a period of about four years, starting when I was 33, um, I lost both my parents in unexpected separate incidents. Um, I got married. I got diagnosed with MS. Uh, six months later, I got diagnosed with advanced stage cancer, the primary tumor being on the head of my pancreas. Never a good place to have cancer. Um, and I became a dad. Um, and so that was like a pretty intense four year window, uh, of beautiful things and like really fucking life altering, you know, hardships. And yeah, I kind of got spit out of that little window of time. And, and, you know, all those things, all those things that happened in those four years, they, they echo forever, you know? Um, and my cancer remains with me to this day, you know, uh, I'm doing great with it better than most, uh, as I like to say, I'm swimming in the good news end of the bad news swimming pool. And I've become a dad again. I got another little girl in my life. Um, the cutest. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you know, <laughs> they keep you keep things real and still writing for a living. Uh, I make a ski and snowboard and mountain culture magazine in Southwest Montana. And I'm a senior contributor at the surfers journal and um, yeah, all still, still working for a newspaper in Santa Barbara, California, occasionally. Um, and a bunch of other weird things. <laughs> my, my toolbox is uh, filled with odds and ends. Um, and really when you make a living with words, you can kind of, 
apply that in any number of directions. And, and I've applied it in most of all those directions over the years. Um, and yeah, the, the, the kind of that struggle that arrived in my mid thirties, um, has very much been a big, you know, it rearranged the furniture in a profound way for me for the rest of my days. Um, and continues to, right. It's a work in progress where there's no such thing as a fixed point in this life. And, and so, you know, it's, it continues. Um, I mean, a year ago right now, I was my oldest who was, you know, six at the time had just broken her back skiing was in a neck brace. We were loading in the van and heading to Palo Alto to the flesh merchants at Stanford to go get half my liver cut out. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a year ago, like this week. So that's sort of me, you know, Cape Cod kid moved West, salt's <laughs> been in my veins forever. Um, now I'm hanging out in the mountains more and more because we might get into that, but that's sort of part of my um, response to some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been to, to really dive into new things and with all of me um, and try to grow life faster than these other elements are trying to take my life. Um, and yeah, man, that's, that's it. You know, just another, just another sack of flesh trying to get through, you know, and, and honor, honor, you know, stay humble and honor all the things that I encounter along the way as best I can and, and forgive myself on the days when I fuck it all up. So. I feel like you have lived more in, 45 how early you said half yeah, 45 in april yeah 45 you've lived more than 45 years than i feel like most people get a chance to in a full 100 year span but um so i think one of the first questions that came up for me is like do you do you remember what it was like or do you remember what the furniture was even laid out or who that person at 33 was before before all this started coming down the pipe you know i do um because i really liked my life you know like i was really enjoying it um i was felt like sky I, i'd met the girl that i was going to spend the rest of my days with um i was really excited about that because i thought that might never happen mm -hmm. um i my career was like really interesting um i was doing fun stuff and important stuff you know like taking on oil companies in California and then hopping on an airplane and flying to New Zealand for three weeks for ESPN to hang out with Travis Pastrana and Nitro Circus. Right. And like <laughs> I was doing all these different things and, and that's what I've always, I'd always wanted with, I, I'd never really thought much about a future. You know, that was one of the afflictions of being an addicted surfer is I never really lived much beyond um, the most immediate weather forecast. And I, but I was stoked, man. You know, like I was living in paradise. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. And that's a tough nut to crack as an outsider to try to live there. And I managed to pull it off. And um, so, yeah, I remember those things, right? Elementally speaking, um, I also used to party a lot, right? Like, like that's a piece. I definitely enjoyed, you know, drinking beers and staying out late and going really hard in every direction that I went. Um, and so all those things I do remember. Um, and I remember like the first domino to fall in that crazy storm of four years was losing my dad. And 
when that happened, I just gotten back from New Zealand, actually, like I was less than 24 hours off the plane. Um, and I'd gone to a trivia night and drank a ton of beer, managed to win trivia night, our table one trivia night that night. Very exciting. Not surprised. And, uh, and, uh, and went home and went to bed, you know, trying to kind of sleep off the jet lag. And I got a phone call in the middle of the night. Um, and it was my sister calling and letting me know, not at that point that my father had died, but that he'd had what they thought was a massive cardiac event and they'd gotten a pulse going and were taking him to the hospital. And, you know, my dad is kind of, he's the only hero I've ever had, you know, and it was big news. I, I, you know, there's, there's baggage that comes with deciding to leave, move out at home at, you know, a young age and not really look back. A lot of people do it because they got a bummer of a family, but that wasn't me. I had an aces family and amazing parents. And so I wasn't running from anything. I was just curious. And uh, so to get that call, it's kind of, you know, when you choose to live your life 3000 miles away from your folks, that's a call you kind of always suspect might come, but I wasn't, you know, it not didn't, that early. yeah, it wasn't the right time for it. Right. So anyways, the call came in and I didn't know he was dead yet, but I kind of had a feeling, you know, just, it seemed like that was where it was trending. And I remember hanging up the phone or in the dark of the bedroom and Anna wakes up and it's like, Oh, what was that? And I was just like, I couldn't even really shoot. It felt like she was really far away. Right. And like, I just closed my eyes and I leaned back onto my pillow and the visual that washed over me was a bowling lane <laughs> and 10 pins sitting at the end of that lane. And those pins, for whatever reason, in this visual that like flashed, I had it like dreamlike. I had this understanding that those pins were essentially my life up until that point. And here came this careening bowling ball down the, down the lane. And it wasn't like a bullseye shot. It was like this crazy weaving thing. And it just hit those pins and cup pow, they went everywhere. And I just, I knew in that, like I had this weird sort of somatic experience in that I knew it was over like that, that set and setting that had been my regular for so long, you know, that security really, um, had just imploded in a way, in ways that I couldn't possibly understand, but I knew enough to know that, you know, that's, that's what was underway. And that was before, you know, a lot of other dominoes fell. So that was, that was the first bowling ball. Yeah, that was the first bowling ball. And, and it, and it just, it, uh, it was a free fall, man. You know, it, it's a free fall and we are creatures who, even when we don't think we are, we are always trying to create control in some capacity. And in those moments when that real, just holy fuck, <clears throat> excuse me that really challenging thing arrives you free fall and no matter what you free fall no matter who you are and i think that that was really my first experience with that you know i i had been blessed um i'd had a really lovely life up until that moment in a traditional sense you know i i had I had a challenge, a pretty big challenge early on that still is with me in the sense that I was sexually abused at a relatively young age. And, and that it took me a long time to really own that and bring that into my personal story. And actually at this point when my father passed away, like I wasn't public yet about that experience. You know, it's, it's funny how 
the struggles that I encountered over those first few years is actually what opened me up and made me able to talk about that original struggle, um, that original hardship that I encountered. But other than that, like my childhood and my early adulthood was, was awesome. <laughs> you know, like I had people that loved me all around me. I had support, encouragement to go and do crazy things, opportunity. Like it was, and it, and in that moment, I didn't, it's not that I thought those things were lost. I just knew that their position was going to radically change. It, it's so funny. You mentioned the, the bowling pins because when I lost Lee, um, I had a, a very similar vision and, and mine was actually a house of cards, you know, where you, you stack the cards and I felt like my whole life I'd so carefully been trying to stack it. And of course, sometimes, you know, something falls and then you replace it. And, you know, I'd been building up this, this elaborate, tower um to get to a point where kind of similar to you i i had felt like you know while i'd certainly had hardships like my life was pretty fucking awesome like i was feeling real good about it and when when she died i just felt like somebody had just blown on that house of cards that just completely you know scattered them to the wind so a very similar different game meta different game stack metaphor but yeah just like those cards aren't gone they just they completely went to the new places and there's no way to predict where they're going to land and it might take a while to find some of them again and um that that kind of brings me to my next thing was like how, how did you start tracking down those pins how did how did the because this this obviously or not obviously but as you kind of said is your your first like major loss um and and I want to get back to the um, abuse story later. That's actually something I just learned about you. And I, I have a lot of, there's a lot to dig into there, but, you know, as it was like your first kind of adult. Yeah. It, it, uh, version of the world going upside down. Yeah. Where did, where did you even start? What was? I, I didn't start, right? Like it's the free fall. And so I, yeah, I think, I mean, getting, circling back for a second, like I think the imagery of the bowling pins and the imagery of the, the house, the cards, right? Like both those speak to fragility. And I think for both of us, you know, like young dudes kind of doing cool stuff and, and making some headway in terms of like, quote unquote, progress in this modern world, you know, like we can live a lot, all of us really can live a lot of days in a row not looking at that fragility. And I think that that's why the image comes so quickly to us in that moment, right? Is that underneath it all on a, on a deep level, like we are very aware of how fragile we are. Um, might not hold it present in our conscious mind, but like our body knows um, and, and we know. And so I, I think that that's, part of it in a sense is like in some ways like that first arrival of that that explosion that 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 the car the house of cards falling apart um is actually like honesty arriving um like oh that's how fragile it's always been you know i'm just looking at it that way right now but it's always been that fragile and i, I was gonna I, say i had a a, a very clear uh, second kind of experience where I felt like I kind of like looked behind the screen. Like, you know, if we're like looking at life and people driving their cars and going to work, I feel like I did one of these where all of a sudden I was, and I was like, Oh, that can just, 
disappear at any moment. Like you could like that whole thing is just like this. We, we think that by having the house and the, you know, car and the, you know, job and all these things that we've built security, like that, those are the house of cards. And we're so proud of like this, like really solid thing we built, but like, oh my God, like there's, there's very little holding that together. It is all so tenuous. Um, and that was, that was a huge eye opener for me. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but that's it. It is a huge eye opener, right? However it arrives and whenever it arrives, it kind of changes things. Um, especially if we can hold on to it. Uh, and, and so to your question of like, how did I start putting it back together? I didn't like, I free fell man for a while. Um, and I, I drank a ton, um, you know, like a lot of my unhealthy habits got a little louder and a lot of like the healthy things I did turned a little unhealthy in terms of my obsession with them or like where I put them in like my totem pole of priority or whatever. Um, but I also like dove into work deeper. Like I just kind of ran from it. Um, and that wasn't in hindsight, I think it couldn't have happened any other way, but it definitely as life like unfolded, it was like, oh shit, that's not the way to go about it. Like I'm, I'm amplifying my anger and I'm getting further from kind of processing, right? Like every, all those decisions, whether it's like, oh, let's go surf for six hours or let's go work a 60 hour week and then go spend three days straight, just partying with the people I love. And then right back to the 60 hour work week, you know, like that, that was not, serving me it was helping me get through in a way like i was was it like, a conscious thought that you realized like oh hey it this wasn't is, this isn't no yeah. it wasn't like oh fuck i'm thinking about my dad let's go have 15 cores lights like that wasn't it um it was more like that's just what i was doing um you know like in terms of where my nervous system was at like i needed I was so pinged out like i just needed to balance that somehow and 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 that i was balancing it with extreme sort of stimulation, whether it was via drugs or alcohol or live music or parties or bubble or art shows or whatever. I just went and, and that, that happened for a while, man, you know, like um, <clears throat> we rolled it basically, you know, 10 months after my dad died, uh, my wife and I got married um, in a pouring rainstorm on the coast of California. And it was a glorious party. Um and I guess it was maybe a few months after that, when I started seeing some interesting stress fractures in terms of my health. Um, and so, yeah, how did I put it back together? I didn't for a long time. Like my dad's death rolled into the jubilation of a marriage, rolled into the challenges of like crazy health stuff. Um, it just like one thing came after another. Like I, I, I never, especially those first few years, like I didn't get a chance to ever catch my breath or get any distance from myself to see what I was actually going through. Um, I was just doing it. And, and so I, I really don't think I thought, how do I put things back together? I'm not sure I ever actually thought that because by the time I was like, had my brain screwed on straight and clear enough to think about this sort of stuff, I already knew I couldn't go back because of my challenges. Yeah. 
So it was like all like, okay, you've been diagnosed with MS, like at age 34. Well, I'm not looking backwards, you know, like how, what can I do? Right. So that was, it was probably that diagnosis that like got me into like hands-on with my life. Like, okay, here's this real diagnosis. I've had this awful trauma of losing my pops, but like, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles for some people. Now I've got this thing, which really could fuck up the rest of my days. So like, what can I do? Um, and, and that's, that's just me, you know, like I like, I, I want to know what I can do in every situation for good or bad. Um, and, do you think yeah. it was that? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to ask if you think that it was having the MS diagnosis, you know, obviously you're the one with the diagnosis. It's not happening to someone else and you love them. So therefore you're going through it, but did that kind of change? Was that the, the needed factor where it's like, oh, this is happening to me? Or because I know that when I lost Lee, like my relationship to like mortality kind of shifted and I, I didn't actually, I'm quite surprised. I didn't really like lean into booze and, you know, just kind of escaping. I did just pack my calendar socially and just try to like be so busy that I, I didn't have time to think or be on my own. But um, I also kind of had this feeling of like, well, shit, like life is short, like that whole thing, like it could be taken away in a moment. So it was like my priorities shifted where I'm, I deprioritized everything that wasn't like bringing me joy and, you know, like kind of you know, cheesy it is had that like yolo like well you never know like i'm gonna do this now because if if i don't do it now like who knows i might not get a chance to do it but i never had like a health thing where i had to feel like oh shit like maybe maybe i've got a clock on me like that yeah not... yeah i think the ms the ms thing was more it was more just simply it made me reflect on my life more immediately in terms of like my decision making and what were the result, what were the impacts of that decision-making, right? Like I'd been blessed with decent genetics. So I was able to do whatever the fuck I wanted. And my body was right there with me. Like, okay. Like I'm not like my body was supporting me in all the things I wanted to do. So my body had never shown me that it was weak before. And I think that was, so it's like, you lose your old man and that's, that sucks. And it makes you think about how fleeting life can be. But then all of a sudden your body, this thing you've kind of take your health, you've kind of taken for granted is suddenly fleeting too. And so it was the combo, I think of like, oh, wow, like the ground beneath me, I really can't count on. So like, how can I, what, if any leverage, leverage do I have to try to firm that up a little bit? It gets back to that free fall and like grasping for control. Um, and so I I looked at my health for the first time in kind of an honest way. And I was terrified. I was terrified by what I saw. And so that motivated me. Um, and like within two weeks of my diagnosis, I was whole hog into like a major life overhaul in terms of like workload, diet, mindset, like all the things, like so many of the things that have become kind of health trends in the last few years. Mm-hmm those were front and center for me. Um, that first winter I was led by a brilliant, um, traditional Chinese medicine doctor who is to this day, you know, a a major player in, in what I do and how I do it. And he's become a dear friend and, and he, you know, he really helped counsel me, um, 
and helped show me what I was doing to myself. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started with like, you know, okay, work, like that's going to change. Uh, oh, alcohol. Yeah. That's over caffeine. See you later. Sugar, whatever, like don't like, and so like when you're, when you're coming from a place of fear of losing your health, it is so, at least for myself, it was pretty darn easy to do these things, to drop these things that I, that previously, even six months prior, I was quietly scared. Cause I was like, man, I don't know if I could stop drinking, like, like drinking destructive in my life. Like I'm holding it together, like just fine. But I don't know if I could, like, if you told me tomorrow, like, guess what, man, tequila's done. No more light beers. Like, see ya. Like, I, no, nope, I'd last, you know, maybe a week at best. Yeah. You know, like it just wasn't. And all of a sudden I put down all these things without really a second thought and, and with no pushback from any area of my life. Cause the severity was such that like my peers did, like everyone was just like, Whoa, Ethan's doing this thing. And, and so that was, that was pretty wild. Um, it was just a big change and it was in, and I noticed pretty quickly that I, I liked the change. Um, mm. it, was, it was interesting to me and I noticed things in my body, you know, that were, yeah, I was curious about it. Um, but then, the, I think maybe in hindsight, the more interesting thing is like it plateaued, man. Like I, I interesting. like I didn't, I wasn't getting better. Right. Like, like my body was still effed up. I was on a lot of medication. I, this MS thing was strange um, and new and also its own very mysterious corner of the medical universe. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I just, I knew after like five months of those efforts, uh, I knew that like there was something else there and yeah. So it was, it was six months from my MS diagnosis that, um, they found this baseball sized pancreas or baseball sized tumor on the head of my pancreas. And, and that really got my attention in a whole new way because it was found in an emergent situation and it popped into my duodenum. I was bleeding out. You know, I was basically, I didn't have any iron or, or even ferritin left in my body. Um, it was, it was a very emergent scenario and, uh, cancer for a young man, you know, I don't wish an MS diagnosis on anyone. It's awful. Uh, but when they tell you, you got a big old cancerous tumor on your pancreas, that, that headline runs a little higher than the other one. And, uh, yeah, so that yeah. was, <clears throat> that was kind of, that was it. It was like that arrived. Right. And, and that was such that before I could even get into like, what's my prognosis or what's the treatment plan before any of that had to happen, I had to endure and survive and come out of like a 12 and a half hour surgery. Um, and what was the, what was the window between learning about the tumor and going into surgery. So it was pretty bang, bang. Cause, um, I was up basically I'd gone in for a blood test right before the 4th of July. It was like the six month mark from my MS discovery. Uh, and they were just doing a full workup, like six months out. Let's just do all the, all the things, see where you're at. And I went in for that blood work right before the 4th, went up to big Sur for the 4th of July, had a lot of fun up at apple pie came back to my office, um, had a message from my primary, but didn't respond because I was on deadline. 
and then got a phone call on a Tuesday after the 4th of July. So this is maybe like five days out from that first blood test. Um, yeah, it, I guess this tumor was like told to me that it was cancer around the 12th of July and I, or 11th of July. And I was at Stanford for my Whipple surgery, I believe around the 26th. So that was a, that was a really compressed thing. Um, and, you know, and it was, I was chasing experts. My situation was pretty rare. Uh, my cancer is not the most common. It's, it's, it's the same cancer that Steve Jobs had and Aretha Franklin and um, the surgery that I needed. This thing called a Whipple is not that common. Um, it's a major, major undertaking where you lose anatomy. They basically open up your whole midsection and pull out all your organs and rebuild anatomy and leave, throw stuff in the dumpster. And it's just, it's a crazy deal. And it wasn't that long ago that all, mo like quite a few people didn't survive that type of surgery. Luckily, you know, we live in a modern age and uh, yeah, it would, it happened fast, man. It was, it, it, I was going to do it all in Santa Barbara. And then my big brother bent my ear basically about how, no, man, you can't do that. Like what you have is rare. And if it's going to work, you got to go somewhere where they see this stuff regularly. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, I didn't have that awareness, right? Like I'd never really had real health struggle. Um, and it, did you, were you able to like kind of comprehend at that time that like that surgery was incredibly dangerous and that you might be looking at I, like a really, so I didn't Google anything. It's probably smart. Yeah. Like I know all about the dangers of Google and, uh, so like really from my diagnosis, I, I think actually that's not true. I think there was one night, like late night in that first week that I went there. Um, but otherwise I just kept it at a distance. And so I, I was in denial, man. I was just like, oh, we'll do this surgery in Santa Barbara. It's no worries. Like, never mind the fact the surgeon does one a year. Like, who cares? I'm young. I'm fit. It'll be good for Anna to have like be close to home with friends and it'll be easier with the dog. Like I was just thinking about these things that were so not really what I should have been thinking about. Um, and yeah, my big bro cut through the noise, I think. And, and, and said, just, you know, this is serious, man. And if you're going to have a shot, you got to go to the best. And in our quick research, uh, you know, we're lucky being in California at that point. Um, there's a lot of great hospitals and brilliant surgeons. Um, but Steve Jobs's medical team was at Stanford, right? And he didn't beat this thing, but you knew he did his research and wasn't seeing dumb, dumb doctors. And, uh, and yeah, there was one man in particular, Dr. Jeffrey Norton, who had been, you know, head of oncology, had a surgical oncology. He was, he was the guy, right? He, he did the Whipple on Patrick Swayze when Patrick's uh, pancreatic cancer was found, you know, and he, he was the guy he does hundreds of Whipples a year, whereas most surgeons at best maybe do 10. And uh, Dr. Norton did a ton of them. And so we're like, we're going to Stanford, baby. And so we tried and they're like, we'd love to see you, but he's busy. He'll see you in September. And my situation was such that that couldn't happen, um, had to happen sooner. And the fates at that point intervened and, and we had an amazing stroke of luck and um, a doorway opened for us at Stanford. And I was there the next day in his office. Um, wow. And then the following week, 
I had my surgery, despite the fact that my insurance said no. Um, me and my mom and two uncles put the whole thing on credit cards. Um, I think we, we charged we charged up like $160,000 worth of credit cards just to get in the door um, for that day of the surgery. You know, that was a heavy, that was, that was a grow you up conversation talking to my two uncles on the phone about like, what would happen if I died? How would that debt be repaid? Um, that was definitely, that was a conversation I didn't see coming in, you know, at that point in life. Um, and yeah, man, just went for it. You know, had the surgery, didn't really let myself think too much about it. Um, you know, luckily I applied a lot of the things I've learned just from like doing big, hard physical efforts over the years. And mm -hmm. you don't think, <laughs> you know, like you look at that next step, not where you're going to be on the trail in three days or whatever. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's, did, that's that. did you feel that same sense of free falling kind of going into that? The I didn't let myself. And I was also being held, man. I was being held by an amazing community, you know, like truly. And that's where the people come in. You know, like I was so supported by my family and my friends. It was ridiculous. I don't know what I've done in this life to deserve that. And they, they carried me through that, you know, and, and every time that I might free fall, like there was someone around or something around to kind of hold me up and, I, you know, I could live a hundred lives. I couldn't pay that back. So it's, yeah, they helped. I didn't, I didn't free fall at that time. Um, you know, I came out the other side of that surgery. And I think as that summer gave way into fall and I was starting to find my way back, I think that's kind of when I fell a little um, because the reality of it all was starting to get in closer to me. Um, I had sort of steeled off a part of me at diagnosis and didn't let anything in there. Um, and you needed that, to get through what you needed to get through. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I knew it just wasn't going to serve me. Um, cause I, I can fall apart as quick as anybody, man. And when I do, I go hard and, and I know, I know that about myself. And so I just tried not to let that happen. And, um, yeah, I, I, it wasn't really until the fall. I think it was um, November 1st is when I found out that I still had cancer, that like this big effort was not, wasn't some miracle save, you know, like I wasn't going to get to squeak through the doggy door and be like, oh, you almost got axed, man. But like, wow, like we got it all in that surgery. Like we caught it, you know, no, that wasn't my, that's not my story. And on November 1st, when that news arrived that like, yeah, you, you've got these things in your liver. Um, that was kind of the, that was the falling moment, you know, where it was like, oh shit. Well, what does that mean? Cause like, I hadn't even, I hadn't even let myself think about that yet. And, and there it was. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was tough. Um, and it was definitely a falling again, you know, and, and has continued to be ever since, you know, I, I like cancer. I like I, one of my mentors said early on, she was like, Ethan, when you get on the cancer train, you never get off. And, uh, I think that's what one of the things she was getting at, um, mm -hmm. you know, that you never, you, you never really stop being scared in some part. And every time you enter these intersections, um, 
there is a little bit of free fall. And now I've just got so many years of it that like I can work with it. Right. Cause a free fall actually it's a one, it's a very strong force. And if you can, mm-hmm. if you can kind of Kung Fu with it, man, you can do some amazing shit when, when that's happening. Um, and that's, I don't know, I, I, that's not always popular to share, but that is my belief that, you know, energy is like that. And so when the shit really goes down, it's also an opportunity to really step up. I mean, that's, that's incredible to hear. I, I feel like any one of those situations would just level most people. And, you know, when people talk about resilience, like, how are you so resilient? Like, I, at least for me personally, like, I don't have an answer. Like, I'm just doing what I would do. I don't know how else to do it. Um, but when you're saying, you know, kind of that feeling of being on the train, never being able to get off, like, I think about, I think about even short-term things where you're not sure what's going to happen and, and how hard it is to like make decisions in that time and, and to like move forward with plans to like, you know, you've created and raised and built this beautiful family, like, (laughs) you know, moving forward with like big decisions and like things that affect other people's lives. Like I just kind of personally like put things on pause until I figure it out. I'm like, I can't make a decision. I can't do it. Like, I just need to go solve this, but like, obviously cancer is not something you solve, right? But like, how do you keep, how do you keep making those decisions moving forward? Like being able to keep living life when like, you know, that you could get that phone call and, at any time and, and go into that. Yeah. Free call mode. I mean, I think you, you know, you don't have any choice. I, at least for me, there was never a choice. Like I, life is awesome, you know, and I'm going to try to live it one way or the other. Um, and I didn't, I don't know, maybe it's part of that, like stealing off part of my heart, right? Like there was some part of me really only until the last couple of years that like the cancer diagnosis, the MS diagnosis, the dead parents, like all that stuff, never, it never got in there. Like I kept, mm. I kept a part of me unaware of that shit. And I was able I was able to live in that space a lot, or at least when it was time to make decisions about stuff, like check into that space and make the decision out of there, um, as opposed to like out of my anxious brain. Um, and, I, but again, that wasn't a conscious thing. Um, in some ways, I think it's how I'm wired. I think my parents raised four kids to like be resilient, whether they were trying to or not, I don't know, but like they did. And they, I've always, valued hope. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always considered hope, like not like it's, it's no light thing. Like I've always considered hope to be like a really important piece of the puzzle. And I don't mean it in some like rose colored lens, like, Oh, hope man. Like, no, no. I mean it like it's an element of this experience. Like hope is an expression of our natural world, right? When you're sitting in the darkest, coldest days of winter, nature is whispering hope to you, right? Like it, it is there, like the sun is still warm. Like if you can get out of the wind and put your face towards the sun, even when it's minus 40, you can feel that warmth. And that warmth is the hope of the coming spring. And like, I, yeah, that's it, man. Like I always, there was always a part of me where 
hope reigned supreme and there was still a piece of old Ethan in there that was like walking somewhat carefree in the same direction he'd always been walking. And I, yeah, I think that that served me really, really well. And it's not to say like, I didn't have a ton of awful days and that I wasn't a bluster of bad mood and doomsday and just full on depressive shit. Like that's, that's par for the course too, you know, like, like I, yeah, being grumpy about stuff is not foreign to me um, at all. And the people closest to me in the world know that all too well, they bear the brunt of it, man. You know, like they're, they're the real heroes and they're the ones who actually should be talked to about resilience because they've had the resilience to put up with me <laughs> and, <laughs> and like all the shit that like spews out of me when I'm going through hard times. Like I, I off gas, man. Like that's something else I realized is like, for me, I have to off gas. Um, it just needs to come out. Right. If it's in, if it's stuck in, it's dry. better than better than packing it down and letting it carbonate <laughs> yeah man so like i off gas and then i own it i'm like yeah that's my fart like like it's just like i own what comes out of me for good and bad and uh so there's a lot of that but i think yeah i think it was just that piece of my heart that i kept untouched for so long and then and then the challenges just got to a point like where they just had been stacking for so long and some just don't go away and I actually realized that in my own personal process, it was time to open up the gates to that part. And I had to let all the way in. And that's where I was going to find sort of my opening to the next chapter. Um, and, and that was a few years back, you know, and, and now, and, and that, that was precipitated. I, I had a pretty scary incident. I've had a lot of surgeries since that first Whipple, um, and I've had some challenges in my healing. And, and one of those surgeries, uh, I wound up flatlining on the operating table um, and had a pretty heavy experience. And on the other side of that is when I started being able to talk about being sexually abused as a kiddo. And when I decided to really let the truth of my situation all the way in. Um, like that was kind of my realization was that that was the next step for me. Um, I had to fully own it and all that that meant and feel all those feels. Um, and, what, and see. what got you to that realization? Was it the fly lining um, or just. I, I think it was that whole spring, man. Like that whole, like the surgery where I flatlined uh, was in mid-May. It was ironically on the one year anniversary of my mom dying. Um, it's funny how the calendar circles back on itself sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I just, I'd also embarked at that time, um, on a pretty extensive cannabis therapy for my cancer. Um, I was using like full spectrum cannabis oil at like really high levels for a, quite a while. And that had me in a weird place. Um, and, that and then I was also doing a lot of body work um, with this guy Bob Cooley, who's a bit of a wizard and works in the fascial tissue. And mm. the combination of those things, um, I just started formulating of a worldview in my head. I don't know where it was born of specifically, but a view where it was like I have to let all of this stuff in. 
Like that's, that's the next step. Like I'm not going to make it across this next bridge. If some part of me is not living in, like, if I'm not fully aligned with what my truth is right now on this planet. And that was it, you know, it's like, and once I started aligning those things, like I unlocked a new, a new power and, and that new power is kind of what powered, you know, propelled me into, into the, you know, more or less where I am now, to be honest, like that was, that was the summer of 2016 um, when I flatlined and those are spring of 2016. And then it was kind of over that summer, it was a really big transformative experience for me and a lot of struggle, um, a lot of mental instability, the instability of, of these near death experiences or death experiences where you come back from is never to be undervalued. Um, I needed to yeah, there was a lot of work to be done and I was a mess. And, you know, I think if we're looking at a butterfly, like I was in the larval stage, I was just literally up of goo. <laughs> and, and that's where I went into in the cocoon. I was just gooed out in the cocoon all summer and fall. And as the fall started to unfold, I began to emerge. And by new year's of that year, we made this decision to like leave our jobs rent out our house, take our one and a half year old and our very old dog and move into the van and, and just head, head somewhere totally different. And for us, that meant go to Montana. And we went to Montana for the winter, you know, normally a time of year where I'm glued to like surf forecast and mm -hmm. California coast. And next thing you know, that winter, I was somewhere in the Eastern slope of the Rockies with totally new people. No one knew my story. Nobody knew anything about me. Um, and I was at the start of a learning curve for a whole new environment and a whole new pursuit. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's here we are in 2023. And, and I think we're like at the end, getting towards the end of like that chapter in a way. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that that was, yeah, it was, uh, letting that stuff in really allowed me to become fully embodied into my new reality. And from that embodiment, I was able to start moving forward again. Do you think you would have been able to do that without the physical relocation or that was just kind of, I don't think so. A... I, I don't. So I, I mean, for myself, I think other people, different relationships with themselves, um, different leverage points for me, I had to get outside of my life to actually get leverage on my life. Um, I didn't know how to live in this new way. Uh, for me, philosophically speaking, if something is big and bad and coming to kill you, you don't get to beat it or outlast it or outmaneuver it without doing similarly big things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, that was it. Again, it was energy in a way, you know, like I don't mean to sound super wooey wooey, but it wow. was like, dude, this big gnarly thing was going down and I arrived to that big gnarly thing, you know, having lived a life of choices. And if I went back to that pattern of choices, come on now, I already knew where it was leading me. And so like, that was, but again, that's my interpretation of it. And, and that's yeah. how I've been able to motivate myself and do the things that I do. And that's just, it's the power of story. And that's the story I've decided to tell, you know, um, it's, I understand enough to know that it's quite different for everybody. Um, of course. But for me, yeah, I had to get out of it in order to get through it. 
in a way. Um, and then I also knew that if like, I wanted to return to any of those things, I needed to choose the return, you know, like I need to like, and choose it with a sober mind of like, wow, I've gotten away from it long enough. Now I know what it is I liked or didn't like about it. And so if I'm going to go back to it, I'm going to do it on these terms. Um, hand select what you bring back in. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd had good mentorship too. Right. Like I, I mean, I write for a living and tell stories and I tell stories about other people and, and I had an amazing network available to me of people that could talk and share and offer their advice or people that loved me would introduce me to people from other parts of their life that might be helpful to me. And, and so I just had awesome opportunity to chat with people and to meet people not too dissimilar from myself, but like 30 years down the road, like, Oh, I got this cancer diagnosis at 38 when I was, you know, my kids were five and three and here I am now at 70 and here are my grandkids. And like, here's what I did, you know, and, and there was something common in all of those stories that I encountered. Um, and the thing that was in common was the agency that these people decided to exercise over their own life, despite these massive challenges. Hmm. The fact that the world was showing them how little control they had they decided to double down in a special creative way on what control they did have. And that that's, that's huge. That was huge, man. And like, I, you know, no one told me that specifically. It was just like, I noticed it. Like it was a comp, it was like a through line through all these different people, different scenarios. And I was like, well, what does that look like for me? You know, like how does, what might that look like for me? And all of a sudden you're in this mindset of like, creative hope and you're you're sitting there with like just gutted over the death of your folks you know terrified over your own mortality because now you're responsible for this other little life and like all these things and and to slip almost accidentally into a state of being where i'm like thinking playfully and creatively about my own problem solving was like the most that's that's some serious kung fu yeah, exactly. And like, and, and, and it wasn't like I went after it. Like I didn't read it in a book and like, oh, this is what I need to practice. It was like, I just like slid into it. Like, it was like, oh, these people have inspired me. Like I've noticed what the commonality is in their stories. What might that be for my story? And, and like, it didn't have any, it wasn't an, it wasn't an intense question. It was like, it was really light. It felt light. And so that was like another thing I started like moving towards, which was when I would think about something, if my body felt pretty light about it, why not check it out? And whereas like, if my body felt really tight and freaked out about it, like doesn't mean I wasn't going to check it out, but like, maybe that wasn't the thing for me. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was fortunate that I had a partner that was up for that sort of adventure not everyone will say hey my super sick advanced stage cancer husband and my one-year-old like we're gonna just quit our jobs and move into a van and uh go on walkabout you know and but that walkabout was so critical you know like it, yeah it, was, it lasted a few years for us we did these big migratory patterns across the country that allowed us to like drop into the communities that we held dearest and spend months at a time there and that was such important medicine for me. I didn't know it was going to be that. Um, mm. 
but it became that it was very clearly that very early on. Um, and isn't as it that, funny how we can kind of just find that medicine? Like you don't know what you're looking for. And all of a sudden you, your body and your choices just kind of like lead you to it without making that active choice. A hundred percent. I mean, again, we're these sensory instruments, right. And it's yeah. like, we can get out of the way of trying to like over, like set aside the overthinking that so often we do too much of and, and let that sensory instrument just resonate with all that's coming into it and move in the direction that it feels like it should move. And yeah, man, like that's, that is the, like, that is one way to talk about flow and, and flow, if nothing else is a wonderful, wonderful signal of health. Mm. Uh, Like if you can live, like, if you can live your life in flow, right? If you can drop in the flow on a regular basis, you are going to be a fundamentally healthier, healthier, longer living human. And like, I, I'll, I don't have the science to support that. I'm not sure anyone does, but boy, oh boy, anecdotally, yeah. I think the world's full of examples of that. And it's, uh, yeah. So I, <clears throat> it is your body wants to be healthy, man. Like we, and, and I use the word healthy, not just as like a, Oh, like, cancer, MS, like broken leg, whatever, but like healthy, health is happiness, you know? And, and it's, it's what we want all the time. And it's what our body's working towards all the time. I mean, cancer, right? Like if we just break down what cancer is, it's a cell that's trying to live forever. It's in pursuit of immortality because it's been threatened by some circumstance, whether it's an environmental thing or a genetic thing or some combination thereof, you know, or just a weird cellular mutation, it's been threatened. And so its response is, I want to try to live forever. Hmm. And like, that's, I've never looked at cancer from the side of the cancer, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just trying to live, dude. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not, Ah, it's, I mean, we, we, our language around cancer is banana pants, like phrases like battle and shit like that. It's like, no, no, like it's you <laughs> like, like it is as fundamentally you as anything. It's your cells. And mm-hmm. you want to go to war with you. Like, fine. If that's a, if that's a metaphor that works for you, like more power to you. But I wonder what might happen if you can soup kind of transcend that metaphor. Um, and yeah. So it's, uh, we want to move towards life, you know, all the time. Um, even I think, you know, like even if your struggles are deep depression, right? Like the most depressed people I know have some of the sharpest, most beautiful appreciation for life mm-hmm. as anybody I've ever met. And so what's that about? Like, why is that? And, and yeah, I think we're just, we're, we're instruments that are tuned to the frequency of life. That's why we're here. And, and we're going to move in pursuit of that, you know, one way or the other. And sometimes you got to get out of the way of yourself to, to get in that direction. Um, and yeah, I think that's in some ways, really my last 10 years have just been that over and over and over again. Like, Oh, I got it figured out a few months later. Oh no, I don't at all. (laughs) Like, uh Oh, like I got to find a whole new way to let go or get out of the way or whatever, you know, whatever the thing may be. Um, we're a dynamic creatures. And so we're always changing and we're always tripping ourselves up. Um, 
you know, even the best, most smooth looking amongst us is tripping over their own feet on a regular basis. And, and so really half the battle is just being able to forgive yourself in that regard. Um, and, and yeah. And then seeing where, where, where you get pulled, you know, you, uh, circling back just a little bit, you know, when you're talking about the mentors that you've had, is there any, and I know that they didn't point you specifically any advice being like, Oh, this is how you should do it. But was there any advice that, you know, they gave you that, that really stands out found helpful? Um, well, you know, my getting back to like my, my Chinese medicine doctor, Anthony Carr, um, he, he had this thing where he would like gently show me kind of what he would call like the tapes that I was playing myself, you know, like, like what I was listening to in my own head in terms of like story. And he would gently yet consistently show that to me and how that would show up in kind of my patterns of ill health. Um, and so that was, that was really helpful. You know, um, he's, he also, he shared, a he's like, you know, the old saying, you can lead a horse to water. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, not even that's true. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, the best you can do is just be like, Hey horse, the water's over there. And then ultimately like the horse is going to have to go if it wants to. You know, and, and so I think, yeah, the way he, he sort of showed me that over and over again in any number of ways. Um, I think I had some cancer friends, um, one of whom, you know, in particular, Michelle, who's not with us anymore. Uh, she, she made a little film that got popular for a minute there. It was called One Way. And it was kind of about her philosophical philosophy towards her diagnosis and, and what she was doing. Um, mm. and, and I think she invited me just purely by being who she was and being my friend. Um, she invited me to consider a slightly more outwardly hopeful disposition than I had previously considered. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I've always, like I said, I've always had hope really as an important part of my makeup, but I don't always offer it to the world. Um, and I don't always show it a lot. Like I'm pretty outwardly cynical, particularly at that time of my life. Um, you know, a career in journalism will do that to you. And, and so I, I just generally assume the worst about things. And I think Michelle quietly showed me the folly of that mindset. Um, particularly as someone who is young and burdened with gnarly medical challenges, how you're doing yourself no favors if that's your default view of the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that helped me um, in a way, you know, like, again, it wasn't like a direct sentence shared with me. It was just the, you know, being her friend and, and kind of looking at how she was drawing a line and being like, wow, there's something there. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's been, I mean, there's been so many along the way. Um, I think that folks, anybody in my life, and there's a lot of them, um, who have created their own realities, uh, they all inspired me because I was doing that already, but at a very low level. And then these challenges have forced me to like really up that game and, and really commit to that view of like, you, you do create your reality.
you know, as best you can, right? There's circumstances well beyond your control, but once those are dealt with, what's left on the playing field is up to you to work with. And I think, uh, yeah, that was something I always felt empowered about from early on. And I, I realized that a lot of other folks dealing with serious cancer diagnoses, especially don't feel that way. Um, and for whatever reason I did, you know, like I, I, I opted out of treatments right early on in my diagnosis. I, I didn't do chemo or radiation for almost nine years. Hmm. Uh, I chose to pursue nature and, you know, my particular type of cancer lends itself to that exploration. I think it's a hormonal cancer. Um, I think because of the excellence of my surgeons in that first Whipple, you know, they really set me up to have that freedom to choose a slightly different path. Um, and then I think when you drill down into the science, cause I can be a bit of a science nerd, there really wasn't at that time, um, any real reason to think that any of those treatment options would really serve me. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it being able, that all speaks to being able to have agency over my life at a time when it felt like my agency had been taken away. And, and I think that that is the doorway to resilience is getting your hands back on the steering wheel of your life and saying, Hey man, it might be going off a cliff, but I'm driving. And, and, and gosh, isn't today a beautiful day? Like, come on now. And, and it's, uh, yeah, a lot of music too. Yeah. <laughs> just listen to a ton of music, man. Like, you know, like just art, like creativity, good people, good food, you know, like just the things that are full of life, like getting around them. That's it. I yeah. want to, I want to be surrounded. I want to surround myself with life. And you've mentioned now, you know, the Chinese medicine, you've mentioned the full spectrum cannabis oil. Um, I know that psychedelics have been kind of a part of your journey. Like, were you kind of finding these tools and they would lead you to the next tool or was it something where you just kind of went down the rabbit hole on something that you wanted yeah. to look into? Or I think a little bit of both. I've always been, um, you know, I've always known that there's like a million ways to skin the cat. And that there's no such thing as one path, you know, like I've always known that long before I had any trouble in life. Um, and so, and I've been open to all quote unquote alternative medicine for a long time. Um, you know, my primary care physician was a Chinese medicine doctor way before I ever got sick. Um, okay. and so like, I've always been kind of aware that traditional Western medicine is but one lens, um, and yeah, when you, when you're under, when you're under attack <laughs> to use, to use the metaphors, um, yep. you know, you need all the tools you can get and cannabis was something, it was an obvious one for me. You know, I'd been smoking weed since high school. Um, I'd grown a bunch of cannabis over the years. Uh, I'd written about it a ton. I'd, I'd been around a lot of amazing, heard a lot of amazing stories about it, um, but even before I started using the cannabis oil, I used peyote um, six months after my initial cancer diagnosis to just see what I could see. Um, you know, I'd done psychedelics a lot in my youth, or I didn't really do them in, until college, but I, I leaned in pretty hard in college. Um, I had an experience shortly after college where 
I was backpacking through South America and we sat in ceremony with a Quechua witch doctor and used ayahuasca at a time when, you know, I think that was like 23 years ago. Um, I didn't even know what ayahuasca was or anything. And I, I had that experience, um, which was interesting because I'd actually been diagnosed with skin cancer. I'd had melanoma pretty early on in my life and had required a surgery when I was 20 years old um, to get out some pretty deep rooted melanoma in my back. Uh, And then it was within the year of that experience where I wound up having ayahuasca somewhere in Southeast Ecuador. And that was a really big, you know, rearranging the furniture early on type of thing. Um, and opened my eyes, uh, to the potency of medicine in non-traditional spaces. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I used the, I used peyote early on to kind of see through the smoke of my challenge to see even if I had a path on this planet, right? Like I, cause at that point it was like, well, if I'm just going to be dead in a year or two, like I'm going to make different decisions probably. Um, but, yeah. if, but if I have a path, I'm going to make different decisions. And so, uh, yeah, peyote helped me with that. Um, without a doubt, I came out of that experience being like, Oh no, I have a path. Like there is one here on this earthly realm and I intend to find it. Um, and yeah, so then it's just looking, making yourself your own research project, right? Like all those years of investigative journalism, suddenly I was just focused on me and my situation. And so talking to people, you know, connecting with people, you hear stories, you chase them down like, oh, this lady in Mammoth, she beat stage, go home and die stage four breast cancer with cannabis oil. Like, okay, who is she? What's her name? How do I get her phone number? I'm going to call her. I want her on the phone. Like, it's not enough just to hear it. I want to talk to her. Is she a crazy person? You know, like (laughs) what's going on here? And, and like things like that. Um, And I started to connect with people that had made it through their pinch points, you know, and sure they were changed and they had challenges, but they were alive and they were thriving as best they could. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was always open to that um, using that peyote was huge. Um, I started using my, I started microdosing LSD. Oh, maybe two or three years in, um, I used that quite intentionally in the lead up to my first daughter being born. Um, Mm. you know, there's a lot of baggage losing your own dad young and then becoming a dad when you have a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I knew I needed to change my thinking around, that sort of thing. Um, and I knew enough about how psychedelics work at that time to know that it could be a really strong tool. Um, and it was, it was fabulous. Um, really helped me find my feet for that transition into fatherhood. Um, you know, my, my Sawyer was born, um, and my mom died six days later in an accident. Um, and at the time my wife was severely hamstrung by some fallout from the birth and, you know, was in and out of the hospital and needed multiple surgeries. I mean, the, the baby was released from the hospital before mom, you know, and, Oof, and, and I here, I, here I was becoming a dad for the first time and my mom tapped out. Um, and so there was a lot happening then, right? Like talk about bandwidth. Like I was 
way beyond my bandwidth. And I have no doubt I wouldn't have been able to navigate that period um, without some of the work that I put in in the months ahead using psychedelics. Um, yeah, it, it helped, man. There's no doubt. And then I used them again in the lead up. Um, last year, I did a trial drug at Stanford that has given mm -hmm. me a great benefit um, for my cancer. And you know, I'd been so like captain natural with all my health stuff. Um, and I had a lot of judgments inside of me about cytotoxic therapies. You know, I was very proud that I'd not done those sorts of things. Um, and there was a lot of ego in that and it was really flawed thinking. Um, but nonetheless, it's where I was at. And I used psychedelics to change the way that I was going to think about this drug that they were going to administer to me because I knew that if it was going to work for me, I had to be able to welcome it. I couldn't resist it. You couldn't battle it because it's yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't battle it. I couldn't feel shitty about it. Like I had to just drop my defenses and mm. let it flow and let it do its thing as best it could. And, you know, my brain is my best friend or my worst enemy. And, and I knew that psychedelics could help me kind of get my brain in line with what I wanted. Um, and yeah, so I, I used them again in that capacity and it worked out really well for me thus far, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you today as a no evidence of disease cancer patient, nearly 10 years in from diagnosis. Um, Fucking incredible. It's yeah, man. It's and amazing. You know, long may it last. You look super healthy too. You're well and thrive <laughs> yeah, i'm doing i'm doing great things you know like I, my body is there for me um I, despite all the stuff i've been through the organs i'm missing now you know like i'm i'm doing stuff i'm hanging out in the mountains a ton climbing up them skiing down them and it's uh it's it's a god it's amazing and uh it's without a doubt the result of western medicine like fucking a thank god for the wizards at stanford and thank god for me being able to have access to that. Um, but just as soundly as I say that it's like due to all this other stuff too, like there is not one without the other. Um, it's that middle path, right? Like it's the middle path, man. You gotta, you gotta take from both sides. If you're going to get through the big, big, scary stuff, at least in the health department. And, uh, that is, yeah, that's, that's been my experience. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's ongoing. <laughs> have, have psychedelics or any of the other work that you've done changed your perception on your own mortality? Um, you know, I, I kind of had some of that benefit, I think long before everything, like doing mushrooms in my late teens, you know, like making a big thing of mushroom tea and hiking up a mountain and watching the sunrise and just like blowing your brains out with your buddies like that. I already had some synthesized views of mortality, you know, um, I think because of those experiences and yeah, like I'm okay. I, mortality is actually like the invocation of the infinite right? Like, like it is when we embrace our mortality, we unlock access to moments that last forever. And I think that I'm, yeah, it, it's, I wouldn't want to live forever. Right. Like it, it sounds really fucking boring and like nothing, 
Yeah. Like nothing is like the shadow is what makes the light pop, you know? And, and I, I don't have any, for a long time, I haven't had fear of that piece of the game, you know, like it is mortality is part of the deal, dude. It's, it's the, it's the promise. Death is the promise of being born and everything else is sort of to be decided, but like you will die. And it was never intended to be any other way. And to think otherwise is just a really cruel sort of ruse. Right. And, and capitalism will do that to you. Right. Like when you're in a consumption based society, they don't more, want you more and more. Yeah, they don't, they don't <laughs> want you thinking about dying necessarily. Like they want you to think about infinite youth and just consume mm-hmm. onwards and onwards. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know if like these more recent usages of psychedelics opened up my thoughts about mortality. Um, I think my experience of flatlining did right. Like that was, that was not very abstract. <laughs> and uh, do you have, do you have specific memories from that? I, yeah, man, it was an experience and I have things that I experienced and I don't know exactly what they are. You know, and they're hard to talk about without sounding like a crazy person. And, but it is, I came out of that. We'll just say I, I woke up from that and there was no, like any residual or any sort of weird thing about mortality that I had was just gone. Like I, I no longer have any fear, fear, definitely no fear. Definitely. Even like, it's like, it's almost like I don't think about it because it just doesn't, it doesn't actually matter. Like your, your time comes when it comes and, and when it arrives, like, I hope you can enjoy the ride. Like, are you going to breathe out or breathe in with your last breath? What's it going to be? Right. Are you going to sigh? Like, are you going to be like, Oh, here we go. You know? And like, I, I don't think one's better than the other, but like, really that's all it's going to be. It's going to be a breath. That's the end. And like, and, and that's that religion can give us views of what might come or whatever, but like, that's what might come, right? Like it, 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 death is coming. And so I don't, yeah, I'm not sure my opinions have changed much. Maybe what's changed is my ability to talk about it and Mm. my desire to talk about it. Like I'm interested in it. I'm interested when I talk to, when I interview people who are, that I'm impressed by, I always need to get into the territory of mortality with them because I'm curious, like, what are they thinking about? Like, how do they see it? Um, especially spending more and more time in the mountains and getting closer with like these career mountain athletes, you know, like if you dedicate your life to the snow arts at elevation on the edge, yeah, you're going to lose friends. Like it's just part of the game. And like, you know, surfing, we lose people, but it's not that often. And it's usually just because they do drugs (laughs) and like, like it's, it, yeah, like we, like bad shit happens in the ocean, but like not nearly to the like you can be like a totally just a recreational alpinist right like no professional aspirations or anything and you've buried friends for sure if you put a few decades in and so i think that uh yeah being in the mountain space is like opened me a lot to that and talking to people you know career mountain climbers the guys who make it to 70 75 
and like all their best buddies are gone now because shit happens and they're still around. And like, I love talking to them about it, you know, and asking them about it. And how is it, how is it when you lose your climbing partner, you go back to do that same thing the next year and you have a wife and kids at home. Like, how do you do that? Like, what is your construct of life and death, you know? And, and we all have different ones and yet we all live under the same terms, you know, like, which is that it's coming for us. Um, and that's, that can either motivate you or paralyze you or do something different every day. I don't know. Um, but for me, I, I, I largely just don't think about it anymore. Like, like in my day-to-day living, it's like, I don't think about it in terms of like fear. Um, I do, I do reflect on, I actually, I should, the more accurate way to say is like, I do reflect on it still as it relates to my children. Mm-hmm. So that's new, right? Like yeah. when I started with cancer and things like that, I wasn't a dad and now I am. And, you know, my youngest isn't even two years old yet. And I really want to watch her get old, you know, like I want to, like, I want to see, I want to see her and her big sister all the way into their adulthood and, and enjoy it, you know? And so in that way, I do think about death as like this thing that is coming, but like, let's talk to it and like, keep it as long as, as long as possible, you know? Um, And yeah. So like, I, in some ways, like maybe the stakes are higher and I'm aware of that, but my fundamental view hasn't changed, which is that, you know, yeah, it's promised to everyone. And why, why should I think I'm special? You know, like I get to avoid it. No way it's coming, man. I mean, there's that book, right. That Tuck Everlasting. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's like popular middle school book. And it's about this family that lives forever and like the challenges of living forever. And I think it's the father gets like busted for, I think he murders someone or something and he winds up getting sentenced to death, but he's not going to die because the dude's going to live forever. And like the woman who wrote it, Natalie Babbitt, I mowed her lawn when I was like 12, 13 years old. Of course you did. Yeah. So like she, she had a summer house on Cape Cod and my dad was a school teacher and he ran a landscaping company and in the summertime and uh, Natalie Babbitt was one of the accounts. And so like, even as a little, as like a preteen, I was chewing on some of these things because I'd read Tuck Everlasting and the lady who wrote it lived in this house. And it was hard not to be like, who's this crazy lady who's like talking about immortality as being a bad thing, right? Because like at 12, living yeah, forever. Yeah, you want to live forever. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, dude, I'm doing that. And and so, yeah, it was, uh, I, I've, I've chewed on this sort of stuff for a long time, maybe without ever knowing. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think recent psychedelic use has shifted my views on mortality. Um, I am at peace with it, you know, like it is, I also in that piece, I know I don't need to explore that world anytime soon. So yeah. it's, yeah, that that's sort of it, I think. Um, man, this is, uh, this has been great. Really appreciate it. This is, uh. I don't know, just there's something about the hope that you bring to to live in and, and the agency that you're choosing to take that's super inspiring. And uh, I hope that people who listen to this will will find some of that in this conversation too. Yeah. Is there uh there any any 
I think a lot of people who are going to listen to this are probably, you know, going through something of their own, um, whether that's losing somebody or, you know, dealing with their own uncertainties. Is there any last things that you'd, you'd want to leave them with? You know, I think it's really important to feel all of it, to give yourself permission to have the free fall, you know, like when you lose that person that you could never imagine losing, it's okay to just fall apart and feel every inch of it. Cause it's going to be a crazy fucking ride, man. You know, like it just is like you could work the rest of your days in an office with no big things happening. And it's going to be a crazy fucking ride because it's crazy being a human, you know, like it's wild to be a human being and to walk this planet with consciousness and to have all the input that we have in every moment, you know, like that's fucking nuts. And then that we're not even talking about the fact that we live on this magical blue orb, you know, that is just endlessly transcendent and its ability to show us how fucking awesome the universe is and so like i think so often when trouble arises we get stiff we get tight we lock down and that isn't the way you know flexibility is the real fountain of youth and that's not just about touching your toes you know it's about knowing that you can go as dark and as hurt and as sad as possible to stretch your heart in new directions in that capacity and that you will come back to center. Like we are elastic. (laughs) We want to live. We want to move towards life. So if those things are true, surrender and let it pull you under for a minute, you know, like go under, it's okay. You know, like how do you get out and surf the good waves on the outer reef? You got to fucking duck dive, man. Like you gotta go under. And it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. Like, I I think that's it. No one gave me that permission, right? When my old man died, I felt like I had to keep it together for my mom, for my siblings, for my wife, for me, like it was just too big. And, and yet I still came apart and it was ugly and it was ungraceful and there was a lot of anger in it. And I just still kept coming apart. And, and when new trouble arrived down the line, I already knew that like trying to fight that falling apart, didn't work. It didn't keep me together. And so, yeah, I think that's it. It Just surrender to the impossible hurt of it all, because that is the burden of the living. And we carry that with us, you know, and that's not to say that it's a chore. It's not, it's really, it's our duty, right? Like that is when we hurt after losing someone, it's just, it's because we love them, you know, and mm-hmm. we keep like, we would never want to change that. And we keep moving, you know, we move, we move deeper into our life and we're going to get more out of that process. I believe if we truly just let go into how fragile and soft and uncertain this whole fucking thing is. And like, I, I, yeah, that's it. Like there's strength in it, man. You know, like it's, there's a lot of strength in that. And I think culturally we've been conditioned, particularly as men 
to to think that's not the case um and that's just a nasty lie it's just another one of those nasty things man that they've <laughs> that they've put on us um couldn't agree more yeah somebody told me the other day like vulnerability is a superpower and kind of was like oh shit you're right yeah <laughs> that's how we yeah. connect that's how we connect these sensory beings is like you know showing the underbelly a little bit and letting people in and fuck man i think that's what stops the free fall yeah it is and that's and that's what gets you back like that's our strength dude you know like like if you think about hard physical challenges there's particularly ones that have like an endurance bend to them there's always a point in the process where you just can't fucking go on <laughs> you know like there's always there maybe that point might arrive six times over the course of a race or something you just can't do it you know like it's impossible to consider doing it and yet you put one foot in front of another and before you know it you're doing it and and i think you know like we've it's another thing that I think Western culture has misled us on, you know, and, and some of the wonders of modern medicine have misled us on, like, there is no way to take, to go on a long journey in a fast manner. Like mm. it's, you can't speed it up, dude. You know, what's the quote? You want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, there you go. And like, I, I think that's the, that's the stuff, you know? And so to anybody out there facing whatever their challenge might be, you know, or whatever that impossible thing that feels like is standing on top of them in this exact moment, it's like, yeah, let it stand on top of you. Get pushed under, like feel that earth, right? Like remember the seed, man. Like what is a seed? A seed that has never blossomed reaches towards an unknown possibility with every inch it's got, right? To crack open as a seed shell and reach up through the dirt, through the darkness into a realm you've never experienced. Like that only happens when you let go of that hard outer shell and then the journey begins. And so it's surrender, 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 and know that somewhere down the road, you'll have to do it again. You know, like it's, it's really, we're all on that path, no matter what our hardship looks like. That's my belief. You know, I, I see that. I see that a lot through the health lens, you know, like everybody's on that path and whether it shows up early in life or late in life, it's going to show up. So might as well start getting your practice reps in now <laughs> and just start surrendering. Yeah. Well, thank you, bud. Wish I could give you a big hug, but, uh, couple couple weeks be able to see yeah. out on the islands yeah. <laughs> that'll be good it'll be good man it's been fun yeah. chat and uh yeah. yeah whatever's whatever's you know if down the road wherever this thing goes we'll keep talking about it so it's uh yeah. it's a good thing you're doing you know like facilitating conversation around these things is so critical um and one of the beauties of this new media landscape that we're living in you know like it, it's i still trip because i think of podcasts i'm like what Somebody please tell me how podcast is different than talk radio. And, <laughs> and I, I really don't think there's a, like a huge difference, um, except maybe agency, right? You're able to curate it more as the consumer and you mm -hmm. can go after what you want specifically. 
And when you find what you specifically want, you can go deep. And, and so maybe that's it. It's just a more direct line than talk radio, but uh, I've always been a sucker for talk radio. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, we'll see where this goes. Um, I'm so, so thankful for your time, for your insights, your wisdom, your friendship. So really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. Who else? Who's so who are you talking to next? Um, I'm talking to a woman named Latte. She's, uh, she lost her fiance, um, actually to cancer, um, a couple of years ago. And she's really, she's been an inspiration in how she's kind of gone through her process and, um, yeah, losing a partner is a, a very specific type of loss. So we're going to have that conversation, uh, next week, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, you know, that loss well and it's funny i i got out last week on a tour um with a guy i call my montana mentor uncle mike he's he's got like 20 years on me and um he's one of my best friends here and one of my primary mountain partners adventure partners mm. and you know his his partner his wife um who was his high school sweetheart you know has just been not she's in no critical situation. She's just entering one of those intersections that you inevitably enter at some point later in life um, where you're like, wow, okay. I got some stuff going on. That's like scary. And anyways, like chatting with him in the skin track and like feeling the depth of like where he was at, because here was this person that was everything to him is everything to him. And she was facing things he couldn't really help her with, right? Like he, he can hold her hand and like help make an appointment or whatever, but like really, and I think that's a piece in all this that we didn't really talk about, but like there is, you are alone. You are fundamentally alone with your suffering at some level, right? Like no matter what, like there Mm -hmm. is isolation in it fundamentally. And that's why it's so important to reach out and find these connections, however you may find them. Um, but you need them because of that fundamental aloneness. Um, and in cruising with Mike and just talking and hearing him talk a bit about like his, you know, what he was worried about and things like that, you know, it, it made me reflect in a different way on like what my wife has been through, through all this. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, yeah, she loved my parents too. And, and so it was a loss for her, but they're not her parents. So it's a different type of loss. And mm-hmm. but like she's nearly lost me a number of times. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she's had to spend a lot of nights and days and hours in between, no doubt reflecting on that and thinking about that, being scared about that. And, and I, I really think like the journey she's been on has been way gnarlier than mine, like by a factor of 10 you know, because I don't have a choice. Like, like this shit that's been coming down the pike for me. If I want to keep living, I have to face it. Right. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I'm not, there's no hero's journey for me, man. Like this is just, okay. This is the cards on the table and I'm still sitting at the table. So I got to play them. And like, but for her, it's different. Like she's choosing me. She's choosing to have those cards on her table, right? Like mm-hmm. in a way, like, or she's making her peace with them or trying to make her peace with them or, or trying to accommodate them in, in her otherwise healthy worldview. You know, like it's just, it's endless, the challenge for the partner. Yeah. And, and they don't get the accolades, you know, they don't get like, 
people coming up to him in the street and being like, Hey man, like, you don't know me, but I'm friends with so-and-so. And like, I know what you've been through and fuck. Yeah. And like fist bump me or whatever, you know, like, like mm-hmm. Anna doesn't get any of that. And, yeah. and so it's like, it's just, it's a whole nother level of hard. And, and it's not even your hard. It's your, it's your challenge only because you chose to love. Mm-hmm. Right. And like that is a fucking cruel plot twist, like no other because love is the great life, like opener, you know, and yet your willingness to be vulnerable in that way and commit to that path has led you into this intersection of just crushing difficulty and hardship and hurt. And like, that is such a bum deal, man. Like that is so raw and wrong. And like, you know, Disney doesn't talk about that shit, you know, like, they, yeah. like our culture is not preparing us. And, yeah. and like it, and yet it is so common, right? Like it is like, as you talk about this, I mean, I'm sure you've already experienced it in being as public as you've been since losing Lee. Like, it's amazing how many of us are walking around with these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's, it is, uh, yeah. Like, I think that is the real, like, that's the real hard work in these situations is being the partner. Um, and then to lose that person, you know, to lose your partner, right? Like my wife, she still got me for good and bad, <laughs> you know? She and, lost you for a second there in 2016. Yeah, yeah, she did. And, you know, the way she tells that story that day is pretty wild too, you know? And, and it, but it, yeah. So I, I just, I think about, I think about that a lot. And I think that this woman you speak with next, you know, like, I can't wait to listen to that because what she in some ways, like the lessons that she's learned and the tools that she has assembled are way more universally important than anything I bring to the conversation because they're like, that's the real shit. Like that's the real burden of living. Like me, I've just, I'm just trying to, you know, survival, right. That's like our default mode. Like I can just click back into default mode and do it right. Like humans want to survive. Whereas like being the partner of losing someone, like it is, yeah, it's a whole nother realm, man. And, and it with echoes forever, you know, like I, I can forget, like I can get up on top of a mountain or paddle out and drop into a big, perfect wave. And I can forget all of my challenge in that moment. And I think you guys can't necessarily like it is, it's written on you a little differently. Yeah. It's something that lives outside of yourself. And in a way you feel like you have no control. I mean, you don't have any control. You can, like you said, be there to support and to try to offer assistance. But once, once things, once the wave takes that other person, like you're not on that wave, (laughs) you know, and, and you just, you got to, trust that that's leading them to a good place. And then, you know, I think the, the way that <clears throat> the way that I have been reflecting on mortality really is, is, I think very similar probably to yours, maybe minus the experience of having had a real physical uh, interaction with death or, you know, experience of it, but I'm, I'm not scared of my own death. I, I think about it only in terms of now being on the other side, like what that leaves for the people who are left behind. And that's, that's what's, you know, heavy for me with mortality. It's not that 
know where I go, where I end up. Like I'm, I'm good with that. I think it's going to be just fine, but yeah, it's a, it's a whole different bag for the people who love you and um, who you love. That's yeah, man, that is it. It is, it is a fucking it's, and it's something, and it's also a mess that like, like if I didn't wake up, if I didn't get a heartbeat again that day, right. Like I would never have any awareness of what that shit storm was like. Yeah. And like, at least not in this earthly sense. And so like, I, how can you ever really under, like, you can't understand that, which you can't are unable to experience. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel for her and I look forward to listening to her talk. Cause it's, uh, those are the folks we need to listen to, you know, like she is, there will come a time, I think for all of us, if we do this thing right in life, where we are in that position that you have, that you are in and she is in. And when you guys talk, we need to listen because it's going to help us when we arrive there in whatever capacity we do, you know, and it's, it's, uh, that's it. Sharing stories, you know, it's bullshitting in the parking lot, man. It always, it always Sharing's sharing stories <laughs> yeah. sitting on the tailgate. <laughs> that's, that's it, dude. It's the stuff, you know, it's all story. I mean, it's all story and it it's, I mean, I'm a Joseph Campbell junkie, so it's easy for me to say, but it's like, it really is like it is and seeing it with my kids, like as they're growing and like Sawyer now, like with what she's been through and like, it's all story, dude. And she uses it. Like we have these natural insights on how to leverage story, you know, like mm-hmm. even as little people, like even Rune, she can barely talk. She's only not even two years old. She's already, I can already see her using story as a mechanism for getting attention and interacting, right? Like she will, she will decide that like this one thing, this like physical item is related to the dog. And like, that's the story of this thing. And so if she's trying to like get the dog's attention, that's the thing she's going to go get. Right. And then it's going, and then she notices sister and mom and dad laughing at the way she's doing it. And she likes that. Right. And so she's like, I'm going to do the same story. And like, you could say, Oh, she's just repeating her behavior, but really I'm like, no, no, she's, she's putting together the elements of a story in a patterned way and doing it repeatedly for a desired effect. Like that is that storytelling. That's, that's what we do. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I, I think it's, and that's the brilliance of what you're doing here with this podcast, man, is like getting people to share story so that others can listen and we can all kind of be joined in that togetherness. Um, it's great. I get to talk to you and, and, in the, in the, you know, the, the end result of that is other people get to listen to this telling of stories and do with it what they will. But it's, I think, you know, the more stories we listen to, the better we are to create a more dynamic story for ourselves. Yeah. We, we absorb, we learn, we transmute. It's all just energy. That's it. It's all, (laughs) it's all the energy, man. It turns out the hippies were right. (laughs) They were right. Hey, energy is physics. Like, woo-woo all you want. Energy is physics. Yeah, I'm with you. And I've become, so I've like gotten way down the rabbit hole of quantum physics. It's something we didn't touch on, but like quantum physics has been a big piece of my health understanding. Mm. Um, And that sounds tricky and weird, but uh, 
it's when I'm talking about energy, I'm usually talking about it in the like in the sense that you would if you're discussing quantum physics and and the idea of being two places at once and things like that um, makes a lot of sense for me personally, particularly with the experiences I've had with life and death. Um, and you know, there's there's actually a great book out there, man. If you haven't read it yet, uh, called The Biology of Belief. And I, I think it's the uh, Dr. Lipton, maybe I think is the guy who wrote it, but it's a really cool book. Um, and while you'll, I don't think the phrase quantum physics is ever in it. If you read that book and then overlay it with like a lay person's understanding of like where we're at with quantum physics right now, like it unpacks into a really potent worldview of, of like ways to digest your health and think about your health and think about your choice and, think about your life. Um, and it, it's, uh, yeah, it's quantum, it's energy, man. And, you know, and the hippies, the hippies hijacked it for a while. Yeah, right. It's, uh, you know, it's all of ours and it's really cool shit. You know, like, I, like if, like, if you cut your hand, I'll leave you like this. I'm not saying this necessarily for the recording, but like, if you cut your hand and you just watch it, it's going to fucking heal. Like, and you're the one doing that. Like, that's not some foreign body, right? That's not medicine coming in and fixing you. Literally, you just, you're, you heal yourself. And I think that there's a little bit of truth in that. Like that, the truth of that is present in all health journeys. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that there's, yeah, it's just something to think about, you know, because oftentimes when we're feeling victimized by an unfortunate plot twist in our lives, we forget that we're superheroes for ourselves every day, you know, fighting away germs, you know, growing hair, <laughs> freaking digesting food, converting it to energy, you know, like yeah. all, like we're doing these heroic things all the time on a, fundamental cellular level and it's uh i think yeah it's a nice way to look at ourselves you know to to think like oh it's not just random that my cut heals it's like i am doing that i'm doing yeah. Yeah. and it's uh it can be helpful little, little collections of miracle <laughs> yeah man yeah keep stacking them up does your hat say amigo or amico it's a me it's amigo. a g yeah i like it all right amigo. i support it Cool, man. Well, uh, all right, brother. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And um, yeah, can't wait to have you listen back to this. Let me know your thoughts. And then, yeah. Are you, so are you building out like the whole package, like intro music? I mean, TBD. Um, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this was a primarily you know vast majority tell the stories be you know have a new medium to play with so i might yeah. try to experiment with that i'm not committing myself to doing that because i also don't want to burn out on trying to go so big with the production of it that then it every week is you know something that's like hanging over me so we'll see i'm gonna i'm gonna work my way into it fortunately i'm tapped into such an amazing group i i have friends who are sound designers and musicians you know like oh yeah I'll, you have opportunities yeah, I would say like having 
helped launch a podcast in the last year. Um, it is really, there's so much, you can't understate the value of that connective tissue of the production. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it's so, it is so important to this emerging medium. Um, yeah. as the, as, and as the medium gets more and more popular, I think your people are really going to distinguish themselves with unique and clean production. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot, basically everyone's just out there following like the Joe Rogan format. And I think there's so much room for creativity in term in terms of presentation and lead in like just, there's so many different yeah. ways. to yeah. cap. Um, well, that's, that's part of what it was too, is like, I, I really wanted to get back to writing I and mean, we've talked about this, but um this is also a way for me to, you know, have a, a platform to do that and to, you know, write a, an intro and, you know, kind of strip some of it and then weave the conversation in. So, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see how deep I go, but you know, this is, this is baby steps here. And yeah. this is honestly the, the, I think taking the first steps always the hardest. So having this For conversation, sure. having now something so well, now you have something you can edit and start to, yeah, fuck with, you know, exactly. Like exactly. you've got the raw material, and and you yeah. did a good job, dude. Like, like it's. I think a lot of times people in your seat, like early on, generally, like you never stepped over me. Like you, like everything was. It had like there's nice space to it. Like you're very respectful, um, and I think that that's something. It's great that you have that because I think that's something actually a lot of people have to learn. Um, <laughs> seems like you're just coming into it with that. So that's lovely. And uh, yeah, man, I think it's, uh, it'll be neat to see how you decide to package it. Cause it, it is a, it seems formulaic if you're out there consuming podcasts, but it's way more free form than I think a lot of people are treating it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you um, just uh, in terms of like one that I really respect and that also kind of got me inspired, I might've mentioned this when we were talking originally, but um, have you listened to the Anderson Cooper podcast? All I have. Yeah. yeah. I haven't like listened to the whole thing, but yeah, yeah. I Cheyenne sent that over a little while ago and I listened to the first, first episode, two episodes, maybe. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I dug it, man. It's, it's cool. And it's, yeah, it's a really, yeah, I just, I think that's it. I think the fact that you're looking at it as like a creative opportunity is only going to enhance what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I mean, it's just, it's totally new. Like I've, I've played in the visual world before, you know, I've, I've played very briefly in the video world. I've never played just with audio. And so like the chance to kind of do that is, is really exciting. Yeah. It's cool, man. And you, and you like audio. So like, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. Part. And that's the other thing. You, you know how much I love music and yeah. creating music and all that. So I, I love putting together those feels for people. And so if I can do that in a way that is my own thing, beautiful. Like I'm, I'm stoked on that. Yeah. What do you, what are your preferred podcasts other than that Anderson Cooper? Like what are the ones you listen to these days? Mm, I've been listening to, I mean, I kind of went down like a, uh, grief and loss okay. <laughs> rabbit hole. Yeah, well, I mean, good. yeah that's but good. um, you know, I I still love all the NPR stuff. I love the produced stuff. I love um, I love storytelling, like the moth and all that. So um, I'm I'm kind of all over the place with them. But yeah, the the ones that like really have that hit me lately were 
that um, this this girl Latte is. Uh, I think I'm saying her name wrong. Lottie. 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 Not Latte. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she has one. There's this one called Good Morning, uh, which is M O U R N I N G. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the that's kind of where I've been spending time. And then you know, I I listened to all the science and nerdy ones and the radio labs and and think that. Yeah. I would think that it could be cool with this sort of theme that you seem to be on to like bring an irreverence to it. However, you might feel that you could do that. That would yeah. be like my creative thought. Um, I think that there's a reverence brought to it by everyone who's doing it, but yeah. I think an irreverence actually might be a much more fun on-ramp for most listeners. And yeah. I don't know exactly what that means, but like, I just, I feel that in these types of conversations, you know, like when I'm having these types of conversations with people, I can often, you know, I'm an old New Englander. And so like, I can be pretty crass about serious things, but it's like, I notice people always love it when I like am very light and dismissive about super heavy shit. Like they're always like, oh, wow. Like, I guess yeah. I can laugh at that. I have permission yeah. to laugh at that. And you're like, hell yeah, yeah you do. You know? I, I think that's, that is, you know, I don't think I've spoken that in so many words, but I think giving per, people permission to to feel lightness around this or to, to feel the full spectrum. I mean, you know, yeah. in this two hour conversation, I think we spent a lot of it talking about very serious stuff, but like laughing a lot too, you know? And so it's like, how do you, how do you blend that? Like, yes, you want to be serious and have a reverence for the, you know, um, the solemnity of people's experience yeah, and, and what they're going through. It's serious. You shit. know, but at the same time, like life's fucking weird and yeah. funny shit happens in the midst of all the shit where you're like, wow, nothing could ever make me smile ever again. And then something happens and you're dying on the floor laughing. And like, that's the like, polarity that i think no one tells you about oh, grief dude. or like all this shit you know like yeah. it's so true so like i uh i when i had my whipple my big surgery in 2013 it's such a big gut surgery that they paralyze your gut afterwards and they pump your stomach acids out of your nose for like 72 hours so that nothing happens in your stomach because they want things to try to come back together um and so I'm not, a, you're not allowed to consume anything. I can't even sip water. Right. But you're, you've just been on a fucking operating table for 12 hours and like cut into pieces. Like you are so desperate for some sort of nourishment, right? Like through your mouth hole so that like your body can like know that you're not dead and yet you can't have any. And so the best they could do for me, at like the 48 hour mark was give me this little cup of like ice water with a tiny sponge and Anna could sponge my lips to give me like the idea of moisture. And so here she is sponging my lips and I'm just like furious. Cause I'm like, this isn't like, this isn't the shit. Like what the fuck, you know? And uh, I'm like really not stoked on it, feeling really lousy about everything. And I am sharing a room with another man who is in a, awful health situation, advanced cancer, has had a big surgery. He's, he's fucked too. Um, but he's able to eat things, but what he's dealing with for reasons that weren't known at the time was he had massively swollen, a massively swollen testicle. 
and <laughs> and, like, and I'm I'm sitting there just like completely losing my shit over the fact that all I can do is like sponge wash my lips and I'm like miserable and complaining as best I can with tubes coming all out of me and I like I I I'm certain I'm being an asshole and I pick up on this conversation on the other side of the like curtain between you know dividing the room and this guy is talking to the nurse his nurse and he's like she's like well you got to get up and walk around or something and he's like I walk around like are you kidding me he's like my testicles are the size of a watermelon I can't walk <laughs> and like and like I just hear that sentence through the fog of my misery and I'm like oh and like and then i start, like maybe i'll take the ice water lips <laughs> yeah like like i start like it's fucking funny and and like it's miserable but like it's fucking funny and i start to feel laughter like in my body which i haven't felt for days and i have huge incision across my stomach dude like huge hole you know so laughing is remarkably painful and really not advised and like i'm like trying not to laugh but then i'm like oh my god i'm gonna laugh i haven't laughed in so long like i want to feel laughter like it was this crazy moment right and then under it all is like i'm laughing at this man who i don't know is super swollen gonad and like he might be dying too like should i even be laughing at him and like the awkwardness of all of that just made it even funnier like it was like holy like when the teacher tells you to shut up in the back of the classroom that's only gonna make you like it, it only makes me exactly <laughs> and like i was like totally busted with it and so um my brother like realized like or someone in the room was like oh and like handed me a pillow because if you like squeeze the pillow in to your stomach it helped hold my guts together and like it wouldn't be as painful as i tried tried not to laugh anyways i'm doing that and then the dude gets up and is like now trying to walk out of our room and he has to walk by my bed and he's on his walker and I'm like, and I see him going by and I'm like, fuck, I got to see if I can see his nuts. Like what, like if they're that big, I'm going to be able to see him. Right. And like, as he's shuffling by and he looks over at me and he kind of realizes like what's going on, I think, you know, cause he, I think his surgery had been a few days before mine. So he was like a little more with it than I was. And he freaking, he's like, you're looking for these? And he like turns around and shows me the backside of his gown. And you can just see this massive swollen <laughs> testicle. And like, yeah, it's just, it's hilarious, man. Like, it's like, holy shit. This is what people are doing to like super sick cancer patients hanging out in a hospital room, fighting for their lives. Like, this is like, this just is laughing at watermelon nuts, <laughs> laughing at watermelon nuts, you know? And like, like it was just, it was, yeah, it was just a reminder that like, if you can't that's laugh, the, you're, pro you're probably already dead. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that that's the beauty in it, you know? Yeah. All right. right, All right. Cool. Later. Take it Later. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of Never the Same. You can find more episodes as well as some supplemental media over at neverthesame.substack.com. And you can even sign up and get notified when new episodes come out. I occasionally post over on the gram under my name, Jordan P. Chu, C-H-I-U. Really appreciate the support. See you guys for the next one. Until then.